0: Greetings, all, and welcome to the Everyday Hope Podcast. Glad to be with you all again. I think we should just begin with the new segment we introduced last time, whining with Pastor Dave. I know you're all excited about that. So, it was a tough week. I was self-warrantined. Yeah, bumped into someone at work who was COVID positive, so I had to get my brain scraped again. Super fun. Problem was, I, I lost all my cues. I can't say any word that starts with a Q. Doctors say I should get them back in the next week or two, but, you know, awkward. Hopefully that won't affect this episode. Uh, I guess it's a good thing this message wasn't written to the church at Wartsite, Arizona. All right, so we're still in Revelation 2, exploring the messages to the seven churches. In the last episode, we talked about the message to the church at Ephesus, and that was a tough one. That church was holding on to sound doctrine, but had forgotten that Jesus told us to love our neighbor. And sometimes that's hard especially when our neighbor is unlovable. I have one of those right now, someone who has made himself my enemy, who is just, he's a despicable person, but he's my neighbor. And it's not good enough for me to say, well, you know, I don't do drugs or rob banks. So it's okay if I hate this jerk, because Jesus said, I want you to not rob banks and to love this guy in spite of how he treats you. And remember, Jesus told that church in Ephesus that if they didn't love their neighbors, they were at risk of not being the church anymore. So, this is not optional with me. All right, so today we're going to move down the road a bit and talk about the message to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Now, when I was much younger, you might even say much, much younger, I had the crazy idea of becoming a police officer. The Pima County Sheriff's Department was hiring 15 new officers, so I applied. And the candidate process involved a battery of tests, a paper test, a memory test, a psychological test, a polygraph test, and a fitness test, which roughly translates to a test to see if you're stupid, a test to see if you're oblivious to your surroundings, a test to see if you're crazy, a test to see if you have too many skeletons in your closet, and a test to see if you're about to drop dead at any moment. Now, I describe the fitness test that way because it really wasn't what you'd call strenuous. You know, the big event in that test was to run a mile and a half in under 12 and a half minutes. Now, young folks with some place to be can actually walk at about four miles an hour, which is a 15 minute mile. Those speed walkers who do, you know, speed walking, they can do a mile in something like eight minutes. The point being the 12 and a half minute mile isn't really an athletic achievement. You with me? Anyway, during this run, I came across a guy who was clearly struggling. I had spoken to him briefly before the run, and I knew he really wanted this job, but he was not in great shape. When I came across him, he was doing the walk of death. You know the walk of death? It's that desperate hands-on-hips walk where you, you try to get at least some oxygen into your lungs while the clock in your head is ticking away your future as a police officer. So I stopped him. I told him we were going to tough out a run to the middle of the backstretch, then we'd walk to the corners, we caught our breath, and then we'd make a mad dash for the finish. All he had to do was, stay with me. Don't think about it, just stay with me. So off we went, and he stayed right with me, and we came in 30 seconds before the deadline. Now, I never saw this guy again, and I don't know if he ever became an officer, but it occurred to me that this is nothing new, You know, this idea of one person encouraging another person to go farther than they think they could go. Well, that's why we have coaches. it's why we have professional trainers. But you can't just choose anyone to be your encourager, right? You have to pick the right person. So how do you choose someone to encourage you to go beyond your limits? Well, I think the first rule of choosing someone like that is to choose someone who's better at whatever you're doing, right? I mean, I need someone strong to help make me stronger. I need someone with a low handicap to make me a better golfer with me. But I think the second rule is just as important Before you choose someone, you have to think you really need help. I need to think I need help in order to let someone help me do something I already think I can do. That poor guy on the run didn't know me, but he was desperate. He needed someone and I just happened to be there. The message to Smyrna got me thinking about this stuff. There's a lot about this message that has to do with encouragement. One person encouraging another to go further than they thought they could. So let's take a look at that message. Now, last time we reviewed the formula in the messages to the seven churches. All seven messages include the same seven sections, although the content is unique. And those seven sections are the destination, the command to write, the thus says section, the description of the speaker, the I know section, the arrangement section, and the proclamation. So I want to read verses 8 through 11, the message to the church at Smyrna, using this seven-part structure. Now, the first two parts are the destination and the command to write. So, in verse 8, we see, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. The third part is the thus says section, and the fourth is the description of the speaker, who is Jesus. So, verse 8 continues and says, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Kind of a cool description of Jesus, right? Then comes the fifth part, the I know section. In verse 9, Jesus, the first and last, says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, it sounds like these folks have suffered, but have held on to their faith, right? The sixth part is the arrangement section. In verse 10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So they have more persecution coming, and obviously the number 10 for 10 days is symbolic. They have some long period of time where they're going to be persecuted. But then Jesus gives them a pretty cool promise, the crown of life, right? And then finally comes the proclamation in verse 11. It says, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Now, you probably noticed in the I know section that Jesus doesn't condemn or admonish Smyrna for anything. Did you notice? He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So it looks like they're not doing anything wrong. They're being persecuted, persecuted in part by Jews in the the city. But there are only two churches on this list that Jesus doesn't condemn for something, right? Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, the first church we talked about, Ephesus, was doing some stuff right, and they were definitely doing some stuff wrong, but not Smyrna. Jesus commends them for their patient endurance of suffering and persecution, and he warns them that more is on the way, but he does not admonish them for anything. They are the church who faithfully endures persecution. Now, in the last episode, I pointed out how some churches today seem to resemble the church at Ephesus. You know, good on doctrine, bad on loving their neighbors. It was pretty easy to find modern examples of that church, but this week it's a little tougher. You see, we live in a place where the suffering of the church usually amounts to severe AV problems, right? We ran out of hymnals. Someone parked in my spot. (coughs) Other than that, churches can meet without fear that someone will barge in and take us all prisoner, throw us in jail, torture us. It's hard to find a, a modern American Smyrna, but it isn't like that all over the world. There are places where being a Christian is dangerous. They face the threat of persecution and suffering every day of their lives as long as they insist on calling Jesus Lord. Now, from this passage, it's clear that the church in Smyrna was suffering in a very specific way. Poverty. And the most likely cause of their physical poverty is the fact that it would have been difficult for Christians to make a living in a city like Smyrna. Much of the industry of that city revolved around the religious cults, making idols for the various temples, or even trading in human lives. It's activities that conflict with the teachings of Jesus. It's also likely that in the industries that did not conflict with their Christian beliefs, Christians were shunned for their unwillingness to worship the emperor and the Roman gods. Scholars have estimated that the population of the Roman Empire in John's day was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60 million, including something like 5 million Jews. So the 50,000 or so Christians of that day would have represented such a small minority that it would have been easy to exclude them and persecute them. Being a Christian put folks in a position where it was difficult to survive, let alone earn a living. The situation in Israel is not much different. When I was there a few years ago, there were 6 million Israelis and 5 million Arab Muslims living in an area about the size of New Jersey. And in that small space, amid all the struggle and conflict, about 180,000 Christians were trying to survive. While I was there, we had the opportunity to spend some time with some Palestinian Christians from a church we visited. We went to their home and talked politics and survival, And they told us about the underground churches. If you're a Muslim convert to Christianity, you can't tell your family. You can't tell your friends. You can't even tell other Christians. If you're found out, your death would be swift and horrible. Our friends, Christians all, did not know when or where these people met to pray and worship or how many people even made up the underground church. This might be a little closer to the situation of the church in Smyrna. There are many places around the world where the church is under intense pressure and scrutiny. We sometimes forget But it's still out there. And I wonder how they hold up. I wonder how they hold on to their faith. I wonder sometimes if I would be able to hold on to mine. I mean, it's all fun and games until someone threatens to feed your kids to the lions, right? So the church in Smyrna was indeed under pressure. They were facing persecution from all sides. The Jews hated them for proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. The Romans hated them for refusing to worship the emperors and the Roman gods. Everyone tried to force them to compromise their faith which resulted in some hard times. And those hard times were about to get harder. So how does Jesus address this church? In each of the seven messages, Jesus uses a different description for himself, not because he can't make up his mind about who he really is, and not because he's one thing to one church, but a different thing to another church. He is all of these things, all of the time to all churches. But in each message, he emphasizes something specific about himself, and he does that on purpose. To Ephesus, he was the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He emphasized his control and his presence. I know because I am. I know because I walk among you. But to Smyrna, he is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. In this message, he emphasizes his death and resurrection. In fact, all of the imagery in this passage deals with life after death, resurrection, and new life in Jesus. Would this have been special to the church at Smyrna? Oh yeah. You see, the city of Smyrna was sacked and completely destroyed near the beginning of the 6th century BC. A small remnant of people survived the destruction and continued to scratch out a meager existence, but the city itself, its its art, its culture, its spirit had been killed. And it stayed dead for a long time. It was nearly 300 years before Alexander the Great rebuilt Smyrna and breathed new life into the once dead city. Smyrna itself had been resurrected. So, the one who speaks to them is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I believe that the city that had died and come back to life would be especially sensitive to this description. He is still the one who walks among the lampstands, and Smyrna would have heard that message too, but to them, he is specifically the one who died and rose again on the third day. To this city, that description would have been very personal. But to this church, it's even more personal. Think about the specific situation of this church. Their looming problem is persecution, maybe to death. Jesus even warns them that more persecution is coming. But he doesn't simply inform them of this and then walk away. He encourages them to hold on. The one who himself rose from the dead in order that they might have life encourages them to persevere under pressure. You know, when I'm struggling with decisions, the Jesus I need most is the one who promises wisdom. When I'm fighting a temptation to sin, the Jesus I need most is the one who is human, who is now alive and can give me strength. When I have sinned, the Jesus I need most is the one who is my uber high priest, continually before the throne of the Father, making intercession for me. But when I'm facing death, the Jesus I need most is the one who lived and died and rose again to give me not just the promise of eternal life, but the real thing. That's what the church in Smyrna needed. They needed help to endure real physical persecution. And they were going to need help from someone big. Someone big enough and experienced enough with suffering that he could actually help. With that guy on their side, they could have real hope of hanging on. So how does that affect us in America? Sure, I get what he's saying to that underground church in Israel, and to other suffering churches in Morocco and China and Africa, and in countless other countries where being a Christian is not even legal. He says, don't be afraid. And he doesn't say this because no harm will come to them. Harm will most definitely come to them. He says this because if they hold on to their faith, he has already purchased eternal life for them. Jesus tells them to hold on and to any who do, he promises the crown of life. But these messages aren't just for those churches, they're for all of us. So what's he telling us? He says that spiritual riches trump physical wealth every time. He says that while troubles may come, life awaits us. Jesus tells us to hold on to our faith even under the most severe persecution we can imagine. He assures us that our tight grip on faith leads to eternal life in him. And remember, we talked about this last time. While this message is to churches, it's also a message to each of us as individuals. Jesus tells each one of us that no matter what is happening or what's going to happen, Life awaits us. Hold on, he says. He tells those of us who have recently had surgery and are in need of healing, hold on, there is life for you. He tells those of us in need of a job, those with financial problems, hold on, there is a life for you. He tells those of us struggling to make sense of a future that is still fuzzy, hold on, there is a life for you. He tells those of us with friends or loved ones who are sick or dying, hold on, there is a life for you. He tells those of us who have had health problems strip away our most loved activities. Hold on, because there's life for you. And how can he stand there and say that with a straight face? How can he say that to someone who has lost a child or a parent or a spouse or a friend? How can he say that to someone who has suffered unspeakable loss? Well, he can say that because he made it true. It's not a platitude. It's a reality that he made manifest. Jesus died and rose to life in order to kill death And provide eternal life for us all. And that's not a pie in the sky ideal. It's not a fancy church phrase. It is the core of who we are as the congregation of the Lord. Life waits for us, no matter what the struggle. And that gives our struggles meaning. The reality of life at the end of the struggle gives every struggle meaning. Think about the last chapters of Revelation. I don't mean to spoil the ending, but John sees the new heaven and the new earth with the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now, we don't know what that afterlife is going to look like exactly, but we know a couple of things, right? We know that God will put things back the way they were meant to be before we mess them up. And we know that we will no longer need a temple in Jerusalem because we will be in the constant presence of our Lord. And we know there will be no sun because he is our light. We won't need the sun the same way we won't need the temple. So, here I am, hands on my hips, sucking wind, Stumbling forward as best I can. I'm completely spent and the clock is ticking. My future is dripping from the hourglass like sand. And each little grain is laughing at me because I have no chance of finishing this race in time. And Jesus comes alongside me and says, Look, you just need to stay with me. Let's tough it out to the corner and then sprint for home. Trust me and I will run with you through this. And I promise you one thing. It's not a lack of suffering. It's not an easy path. It is life, real life, eternal life, life with me. And it's a promise you can take to the bank. You know, I'm convinced that with that truth, running with me right now, I can really do all things, just like Paul says in Philippians 4. I can really hold on through suffering. The one who has suffered and died and risen tells me to hold on. He says, I will run with you. Just stay with me and we'll make it there together. Make me think about Jesus among those lampstands, right? Right? He's not only our high priest, making intercession for us in heaven, making sure we have a place in the new earth. He is also our, can we say it? He's our personal trainer, helping us to live, to survive, and even thrive right now in this life and on this busted earth. And that's something I can live with. Amen. I'm going to pray for you right now. And as always, I want you to keep your eyes on what you're doing. There's no rule that says God won't listen to your prayers unless you assume the position. Right? He can hear you if your eyes are open, so stay safe and just let your hearts pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this great promise. We always wonder why you allow suffering, and sometimes it just doesn't make any sense, but we thank you, Lord, for the reality that you are with us in our suffering. Just as Psalm 23 promised. Lord, we ask not only that you walk us through the valley of the shadow of death, but that you bring us up out of it and into your light. And in the meantime, Help us to be like the Christians in Smyrna. Help us to hold on to our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, until next time. I hope this promise gives you a little everyday hope. Yep, I just did that.